Actually, not that much about that Pope guy, but all right. We're going to get into that, I suppose. Yeah. Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Pry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode seven, Pope Everistus. Everistus? Everistus. Evaristus? Okay. Yeah. It's going to be a short episode. I can tell you that now. So buckle in. We're just going to have to run with it, really. All right. Not a lot about this guy. There's not a lot about this guy. There's not a lot of sources. Uh, We should just jump right into it, though, because I have some extras I'm going to throw at the end for you. Sweet. Let's talk a little bit about Everestus. In our continuing prelude of historical sources sucking wind, Everestus is the source of some naming confusion again. Oh, yeah? He's not quite like Anacletus, where we have one person cited twice, just that we know him conventionally as Everestus, but there are also sources, even prominent sources like the Liberian Catalog, who also refer to him as Aristus. So again, when you're going through the sources, there are going to be some that call him one name, and some that call him another. And this has caused some confusion in some of the earlier historical accounts. That is a thing. Just like all of the other early popes, we have to deal with that. But with that out of the way, let's get to his life. Because some sources actually list a birthday for Evaristus. Oh, he's got a birthday. He may have a birthday, because no article I actually read was able to cite a primary source for this information. So I'm going to bet that it's entirely made up. That's fair. It's the first time we have anything that actually looks like a birthday. And because information is pretty light on Everestus as a whole, we're just going to go for it and say that he was born on April 17th, 44 AD in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. What a coincidence. This is important. His family were Greek and Jewish. His father's name was Judah, and you're right, it is very important to discuss the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. Oh, I hit on something important. (laughs) You did, ding, ding, ding. It's important to remember that at this stage in the early church, Jewish Christians were still a large, prominent group. Things are going to splinter later on, but at this point... They currently make up a large part of the Christian congregation. I mean, after all, they were the only Christians up until the Council of Jerusalem, where Peter finally embraced the conversion of the Gentiles, which is after his bro fight with Paul. Yeah, after that party crash. Yeah, he finally comes around to that idea. Jews at this point are some of the only Christians. And with this in mind, although the heart and center of power for the Christians is Rome, or at least it's becoming Rome, Jerusalem is still seen as the birthplace of Christianity. Surprise, surprise, because it's where Christ had been born, grown up, and lived. So the fact that Evaristus was born in Bethlehem is pretty significant to the way that he's been treated or depicted by the church, because we'll see in his later symbology Everestus is often shown, like, alongside a cradle, because he was born in the cradle of Christianity, just like Jesus, so. 
This is something that's only going to be further emphasized in about 70 AD when Jerusalem gets completely decimated by the Romans following the Jewish uprising that had happened a couple of years prior. And this makes that connection of Christianity more of an emotional ideal. It's kind of that nostalgic attachment to its origins, a place that maybe it can't go back to. Okay. Like I said before, this really isn't going to last. So while it exists for the time being, we should acknowledge it that this is a thing that's happening, but it won't last for very long. Let them have their nostalgia. Yes, they're going to need it at least for a little bit until they start getting really angry at one another. But back to Evaristus, we can assume and accept that at some point he grew up and at some point he joined the church. Can we? That's all we got. I mean, we don't have a single anecdote from childhood. We don't have anything beyond the fact that he definitely at some point joined the church because he is then made into a prominent bishop in Rome, the prominent bishop of Rome, the pope, while Trajan is the emperor. This is interesting because one source says that Evaristus was elected to the post, but there is no indication of how or why or who by, and since up to this point we have just had successions of appointment or people going to the natural fit of who was having the greatest impact of the moment to be the next pope, we can't really explore this in any other detail. There isn't any other detail to explore. But it's interesting because this is the first time that we really see any mention of a papal election, so... Also important. It could be. It could not be. It probably didn't happen. But, you know, again, we're just going to assume that everything is true because we have so little. And just like his early life, Everestus's papacy isn't particularly astoundingly unique at this point either. You know, the Liber Pontificalis tells us very matter-of-factly that Everestus divided Rome into titles which he then appointed a priest for each title, with five new bishops, and added seven new deacons to assist each of the bishops that were to be special, authentic witnesses for him. So this is like a way to ensure the faith is being properly communicated and that bishops are serving at their best. This comes down to ensuring that churchmen were advancing the word of God and the message of the church rather than just advancing themselves. Basically, these new appointments are the first real safeguards implemented to maintain any form of orthodoxy that the church is going to put forward. But this is quite a lot at once for the early church. If we assume that we're sticking to the 25 bishops that were appointed from before, plus the five that he's consecrating now, with seven deacons for each of the bishops, we're now at 215 new members of the church being ordained. That's a lot of deacons. Yeah, and that's assuming that no one had died or been killed in the persecutions or anything like that in that time, that no one else needed to be replaced. So, it's a lot. It is said that he conferred holy orders one December at least three times. Wow. Yeah. December is when the early church consecrated its new priests and bishops. And so for there to be three sessions of this happening in one year is 
pretty anomalous for them to write it down, and a pretty clear statement that Everestus was pretty zealous about getting those new roles into place. Oh yeah, for sure. What seems to be happening here is there's a build on what Anacletus had done, and to refresh your memory, he had been the one to divide Rome into 25 parishes to be overseen by a priest, and at the time, this is a better way to manage the growing population of Christians across the whole of Rome, giving them some direct oversight, but also ensuring that errant leadership didn't lead segments of the Christian flock astray, especially at this early time. And by taking those parishes and now grouping them in those titles, which were to be overseen by someone specially designated to each area, but also starting to develop a role over the general overseeing priest of the parish, this is where we're getting a bit more of a hierarchy than just priests and bishops. These priests who are now charged with overseeing a title of a few parishes are gaining new and special responsibilities. So we're starting to see some stratification in administration, basically. There are, is some argument to be made, and some people have tried to argue that these priests with the extra responsibilities are the first proto-cardinals that we see in church history. And since cardinals are going to become so important to the church, as well as the papacy, this could be considered significant. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. We don't have a lot to go on. We don't. In fact, the only other thing that we know about Everestus as Pope is that he decreed that altars should always be made from stone, should always be blessed and consecrated, and that this was to represent the Lord as the immovable foundation of the church. Or, you know, the rock. Yeah, okay, the rock. Peter's back. Yeah. And so then, at some point, Everestus goes the way of the early popes, dying as a martyr. Oh yeah? How would he die? Well, generally, it's accepted that Everestus was martyred at the same time as St. Ignatius of Antioch, who is one of the apostolic fathers that we discussed at the top of our last episode. The Jesus-adjacent? The Jesus-adjacent, yes. This means that, like St. Ignatius, Everestus met his death in either the Colosseum or the Circus Maximus. So, it's more of a big deal. He's not just martyred on the side of a road like some other popes will be, he is actually going to meet his death in front of a massive audience, one way or another. In Ignatius's own writing, he mentions that he would be thrown to the beasts, and then we have writings from St. Jerome later who records that those beasts were lions. Yes, lions are the regular nommers. They nom so good. They do such a good nom. Fortunately for Everestus, he's not really going to be nommed. So, um, you know, despite the fact that they are dying at the same time and being martyred in the same place, it's generally thought that Everestus didn't get nommed, but that he got decapitated instead. So, I don't know. Would you rather be beheaded or nommed? Um, I would choose beheading. I'm thinking so too. So, you know, he got off probably a little easier while. St. Ignatius was nommed. In Eusebius's Church History, number four, he cites that Everestus' death 
was the 12th year of Emperor Trajan, which would be 110. And St. Ignatius's year of death is cited as 108. And every other source on Everestus dates his death at 107. So, were they martyred together? Who knows, really? The Liber Pontificalis is also fairly specific, stating that Everestus received the crown of martyrdom. He was buried near the body of Blessed Peter in the Vatican on the sixth day of the Calends of November. The Episcopal throne remained vacant for 19 days. And the sixth day of the Calends of November would be October 25th, but no year is given there. So we may have a birthday, we may have a death day, we don't know what year. These are things that happened. Also, that whole sentence about him dying was more than we had entirely for the rest of his life. Yep, pretty much. That is actually most of his section of the Liber Pontificalis, because they usually only give them a couple lines each. His is mostly about dying. So, now before we move on, because this is such a short episode, and we still have lots of time to rate Everestus, we're going to take a short detour because I'd like to look at St. Ignatius of Antioch in a little more detail. He's actually been a source for us in doing some of these earlier popes, and now that he's been thrown to the lions, we should just give him a moment, I think. Ignatius Theophorus was born in 35 AD and converted to Christianity quite early in life. He had had some contact with another one of the apostolic father, Polycarp, Oh, I forgot about Polycarp. Yeah, it's a good name, right? Yeah. Many fishes. So many. He also probably spent some time with the Apostle John, and he was eventually appointed to the bishopric of Antioch, maybe by Peter. And while serving in that role, he wrote a series of seven letters, which, very much like the letter to the Corinthians that we talked about with Pope Clement, show a lot of insight into the early Christian theology and, like, the early machinations of the church. This time, because he's not in Rome, we're getting a view of what it was like in Antioch, which is outside of Rome and going to develop into the Eastern Church a little bit later on. So the letters that we can verify for sure came from St. Ignatius are the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Magnesians, the letter to the Tralians, Letter to the Romans, Letter to the Philadelphians, Letter to the Smyrnians, and a letter to Polycarp, and a letter to Polycarp, who at the time was serving as the Bishop of Smyrna. So these letters cover things like theology and the sacraments, uh, divisions within the religion, as well as like hierarchy of authority in the church, with particular reference to bishops, which makes sense because he was a bishop. And these letters also make Ignatius one of the key figures for the reinforcement of that idea of apostolic succession, because he's one of the first people we actually have writing about this idea very clearly. He's into those circular friends. He's super into those circular friends, and he wants to make sure that they are passed down in an unbroken line to somebody who's going to do the job. He probably wanted to get his hands on the circular friends eventually. This is his resume. Yeah. The majority of these letters are also thought to have been written while he was traveling towards Rome, which is where he would be martyred alongside Everestus. So it's like a journaling. He just writes a letter every night. A journey to his death. 
He's he's got to get those thoughts out there. Yeah, he so, does. He has to just brain dump everything out before he gets there. And this is a really weird thing, too, because his arrest and subsequent transport to Rome for this torturous execution is pretty unusual. And it's a cause for debate amongst historians, really, because the arguments have been made that if it were just on account of Christian persecution... There would have been no reason for him to have been arrested and transported all the way to Rome. He would have just been executed locally. And more likely, the punishment would have been beheading, like Evaristus. But he was brought all the way to Rome and thrown to the lions in the amphitheater. Who did he piss off? Well, exactly. Who did he piss off? What was happening here? What is he being arrested for? What is he being tried for? One suggestion is that his charge was not just being a Christian, but rather disturbing the peace, which was very much a capital offense. And it's possible that if there was some sort of public conflict or like mobs during Ignatius's preaching, this could have caused all sorts of trouble, and that could be why. But they're still really not sure what's going on there. After his death, Ignatius is canonized, and his Catholic Church feast day is currently celebrated on February 1st. Oh, that's very close to my birthday. He's almost the saint of your birthday. Almost the saint of my birthday, not quite. His relics are transferred to the Basilica di San Clement in Rome in 637, and are still considered to be there. And as one little, like, last fun fact about Ignatius, is that he may have been the earliest person to actually use the phrase Catholic Church in his writing. But now, back to Everestus. We get to rate him now. Yeah, let's see how he holds up when we rate him. All right. Papatum infallium. Overall success of the papacy, while a lot of administration, he appoints a whole bunch of new bishops and deacons and priests. He adds in this idea of the title to supervise the parishes. They are kind of proto-cardinals. He has decided that all altars must be consecrated, and that's about it. That's pretty good overall. What would you like to give him? Let's give him, like, a five. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair, because he is he is building on what the church will need in the future, which is hierarchy. This is something that we're going to see a lot of, so I think I will match you in that. A five seems pretty fair for someone who is just steering things along, trucking along, not not making a fuss, just doing what he needs to do. Not doing anything wrong, not doing anything outrageous, just uh, trucking. So we will give him a 10 out of 20 for Papatum Amphalium. Fructus Prohibitum? Yeah, there's not a thing that we have here for this category. He gets another goose egg. I promise this is a category for later popes, so we're going to have some just... There's just not enough sources for this at the time. Seculari impactum. So, as far as his effect on the everyday people, I could think of one thing, and that is that the altars are henceforth to be made of stone, which makes them last longer, which is really useful for historians of later generations. So I'm going to give him two points just for that, because, yeah. See, I, that's not where I thought you were going with it. Was, you have to call all the stonemakers, and then they have to <laughs> make them, but they only have to make the one. So he's employing people of the empire. Yes. Okay. 
Well, do you want to give him any points? I'll give him like a one. I mean, eh. Yeah, I'm only giving him points because I'm a historian and that kind of stuff is awesome for us. So that gives him a three for Secularis Impactum. That's more than I thought he was going to get. Surprise! Fossium Sanctus. Okay, I'm going to send you some photos now. Are you prepared? What's this man look like? I am not, not, never. There is one photo of him that has clearly been reproduced in many different forms, and they all look the exact same. So I'm going to give you this one. This is the one we're going to rate on. (laughs) Oh, you're laughing already. This cannot bode well. Oh, oh God, he's so mad. (laughs) He just looks real pissed off. And he's the caption like, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. He's making a mad dad face. <laughs> he's making the maddest dad face. He just looks like he is so sick of your <laughs> You dented the car again? You sure did. Describe him a little bit beyond his mad dad face. Okay, um, he's got very much a bald head. Just the sides, just the sides of his head have hair still. He doesn't, We. I see we have moved away from the weird puff of hair in the front thank goodness uh he's got some sallow cheeks he does he's got some sunken eyes his beard has a weird little point he's it's his beard is it looks like he groomed it into like a pseudo metal beard here yeah it's starting to part in the middle it's like he wants a fork beard but he's not quite committed he's not committed yet um, he's real scowly. Like, they added some in-between-the-eye frown lines. They totally did. Yeah, he looks real mad. So what do you want to give Mad Dad Face out of ten? Let's give him a two. Okay. You know what? I'm going to match that because I don't think we can give him more for that, but I'm just really impressed with his scowly face. He's so mad. That gives him a one. For Facium Sanctus. He does not approve of this at all. I'm just going to send you one more because there's also this one. (laughs) It's it's a totally different picture, but it is the same expression. He doesn't look as mad in this one. He looks like a frog. (laughs) What? Or he's like a fish. I don't know. It's supposed to be his mustache probably, but it just made his mouth look weird. Oh, it does kind of look like a froggy mouth. I was just so I was just so intently focused on his expression of disappointment that I missed that entirely. See, in this one he doesn't look mad dad disappointed. He looks disappointed like when Billy Crystal does in films where he just looks like a kicked dog. <laughs> yeah, he looks sadder in this one. I will give you that. Would you have rated him higher or lower based on this photo? So much lower. I agree. I would have rated him much, much lower. Tempus Pontificus. General consensus, once again, puts Evaristus' papacy at 99 to 107, which is a total of eight years. Gives him a nice round score of two. Good. (laughs) I see he's getting twos across the board here. There's lots of twos. His score's not so great yet. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round! He's a saint. Is he? Yeah, he is. Just like uh, all these guys are going to be in the beginning. He's not that special. Why does he get to be a saint? Well, when we get to the first 30 popes or so, we'll have to go back and do a saintly review. And uh, we'll see. We'll see a trend there. So his feast day is celebrated on October 26th 
he's often depicted with a sword for how he was executed, or with that crib for the birth in Bethlehem thing. And he is not a patron saint of anything, so you get to decide. What is he a patron saint of today? Patron saint of mad dads. Mad and disappointed dads? Oh yeah, for sure. Mad and dis- So he is now the patron saint of mad and disappointed dads. So now we're going to go and tabulate his total score, which is- Oh dear. Uh, is it negative? No, he he's going to receive a very modest sum of 17 points. He is now the the lowest coming under Anacletus by one point. A very modest score. We now must ask ourselves whether or not he has that extra history pizzazz. So I'm going to stop you and him. just say no. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Everistus. You've got a great name, but you have no star power so far. And you can blame the sources. You don't even deserve our papable bit. Get out. Oh, you're so mean. As you send him down to purgatory, now he really is a kicked puppy. Poor guy. All right. Well, that would normally be the end of our episode, but I have a surprise. It's time for Pope Watch. A Pope Watch. Francis has been up to some stuff. Oh, yeah? On May 19th of this year, which was about a week ago from the time that we're recording now, Pope Francis announced that he will be overseeing the canonization of Pope Paul VI and Bishop Oscar Romero of San Salvador on October 14th of this year. We're going to have someone to be a saint before we get to them. Just... Yes! Ooh. Pope Paul has just scored himself a future bonus point for from us. Surprise! Yeah, it's a long time since we're going to get to him. But he's he's got a bonus point. And interestingly... He is also the third pope that Francis will have canonized. Oh. The other two are John the 23rd and John Paul the 2nd, both canonized in 2014. So Francis is handing out our bonus points, man. Oh, good. Someone needs to. The ceremony for this canonization will happen during the Synod of Bishops, scheduled from October 3rd to 28th. And just to give you an idea of who these people are, I don't want to give too much away about Pope Paul VI, because we're going to get to him, but briefly, he was Pope from 1963 to 78, and continued on the Second Vatican Council, which had been started by his predecessor, John Twenty-Third, and he had carried out a lot of the reforms that were decided in that council. Is that that Vatican II stuff? Yes. Yes. He he was also instrumental in some of the modernizations of the church. The appeal to the hippies? Yeah. Yeah, he's bringing it he's bringing it around, except for birth control. Yep, none of that. He maintained a very very strong stance against it in his famous encyclical Humane Vita in 1968. But again, more in his episode. We'll move on. The big one here is Bishop Oscar Romero because he will be the first Salvadorian saint ever, and he was martyred in 1980, where he was shot in the chapel of the Hospital of Divine Providence, and the assassin was linked to an extreme right-wing politician called Roberto D'Aguisson, who literally ran a death squad and targeted Romero for his outspoken opposition of military oppression, the Civil War, and violence. 
Wow, way to prove that man's point. Yeah, exactly. And if you follow any Catholic news sources at all, you'll know that Romero's canonization announcement is huge. People have been championing for this since his beatification in 2015, and they have been celebrating since this announcement. It was super, super big deal on social media. I'm glad they're happy about it, because sometimes they're like, we're going to make this guy a saint, and people are like, why? Yeah, it seems like everyone's pretty on board with Romero. It's It seems like he was generally very, very loved. Um, I haven't, you know, I should look into that a little bit more, but from what I was able to find so far, he is he is very well respected. So, But Francis isn't done yet. No. Because one day after making this announcement, he also announced that he intends to elevate 14 new bishops to the cardinalate on June 29th, Ooh. which should be really close to when this episode is coming out. So that's cool. That's a lot. That is a lot. The bishops that were chosen were selected for their work with the poor, or they're from non-Catholic majority countries, which is very, very Jesuit of the first Jesuit pope, because that's what the Jesuits are all about. The cardinals will come from Bolivia, Mexico, Peru, Japan, Pakistan, Madagascar, Poland, Iraq, Portugal, Spain, and Italy. It's a good spread. And this is going to bring the total cardinalate to 125 cardinals, which exceeds the limit for conclave that was set by Pope Paul VI at 120. But at least four of the cardinals that Francis is elevating are over 80, so they can't vote in the conclave anyways. That, I would be so mad. I would be like, now? Now I can vote and I can't even get in. I can't vote because I'm too old. Well, you know, there's got to be a limit somewhere. It's true. They gotta make sure they got their faculties, I get it. Yes, yes, we don't want senile voters. Interestingly, and this is a fun little tidbit that I was not aware of, with this new appointment, this means that Francis will have been responsible for the appointment of almost half of the whole cardinalate that currently exists. Oh, well. So half of the people in there have been made cardinals by Francis. This is a time of turnover for the church. Yeah, we're going to start a revolution, I guess. Isn't that crazy? Like, over half of them are ones that he personally appointed. That's huge. That is so many. Yeah, it's, it's, a, little, it's a lot. Now that actually brings us to the end of our show. It's a short one. We said it would be, so we have a couple thank yous to throw out. Specifically to the History of Witchcraft podcast, which has generously given us the opportunity to put a promo on their show. That is really cool. Thank you, Sam. We love your show. And we also need to thank Scott Rowland and the Roman and Byzantine History Group on Facebook for inviting us in, sharing our show with everybody, and letting them know we exist. Thank you very much. Thank you again to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for always bolstering us you guys are the best you can find us on most major pod catching apps uh i think well i mean by the time you hear this but as of recording i think a couple days ago we got accepted to google play mm -hmm. and we've been working on pretty much any pod catching app we can think of if you for some reason are trying to find us on yours and absolutely 100 percent cannot please reach out to us yeah let us know 
You can find us on Twitter or Facebook as PontifaxPod, and you can also email us at PontifaxPod at gmail.com. We would absolutely love to hear from you. We love feedback. Um, it kind of just, it gives us the best feeling. And speaking of feedback, if you're really into helping us out, if you can go and drop us a review on iTunes, that could maybe help us get onto New and Noteworthy. Maybe it'll help people find us. Maybe it'll make us a little bit more visible. Yeah, we're trying to get on New and Noteworthy. Oh, I think we made a mistake, though, because we're against all those murder podcasts, and everybody loves murder. Yeah, well, there's murder in this podcast. There, oh, there will be. There will be so much murder to come. If you like murder, stay tuned. And with that, we say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.